0: Awesome. <laughs> well, good morning. So glad to be here with you. Um, yeah, you can hear the accent, huh? I'm, I should have said, Howdy, y'all, right? But so honored to be with you again. Um, got to be here before, and it's just a great joy to be back with you. I, I love this church because I love Mike and Sarah, and I know this is a great church because I know them well. Uh, I know they love you, they talk about you often, they pray for you often. And I know that Mike loves the Word of God. 23 books you've worked through. Uh, And and here we are in another one, Mark chapter one. It's pretty amazing. So you heard him say, we're gonna talk uh, this year through the Gospel of Mark. We're also gonna talk as we start this series called Beginnings about failure. (laughs) That's a word we all like, right? Not, right? Yet we've all experienced failure in a variety of ways and it can be embarrassing and painful, Uh, There's a phrase even that's popped up recently in our culture. You've probably heard the phrase, epic fail. Have you heard that phrase, right? Apparently, the word fail is not big enough (laughs) to capture the horrendous nature of a moment like this. It has to be an epic failure. The term epic failure is defined this way, a mistake of such epic proportions that it requires its own term in order to successfully point out the unfathomable shortcomings of an individual or a group. Ever had one of those? An epic fail, just think Carl Lewis trying to sing the national anthem, right? Uh Uh-oh, yeah, epic fail. I've had a few of those epic failure moments. You know, the ones you wish you could just take back, the ones you wish you could just have a mulligan or a do-over for? Somebody wrote in a letter, sometimes I feel like there's a tug of war going on inside of me. I really wanna do what's best, but I always end up disappointing myself and God. I've tried everything, prayer, resolutions, Self-help books, nothing seems to work. Why do I keep making the same mistakes? Why am I so resistant to change? Why do I do the things I know are bad for me? I'm very discouraged, I feel like a failure, and I need help getting unstuck. Anybody ever felt like that? Am I the only one? I'd leave, yeah. <laughs> I should walk off stage now, yeah. If you've ever felt that way, then maybe a story will help. It was one of the hardest days of his life. This day, he would have to face for the first time since that fateful day, the one whom he had deserted and abandoned a few years ago. It might have been the worst decision of his life. He already was struggling to lose the label that he had acquired when he ran away the first time. He was just a kid, for goodness sake. All of the others were afraid and fled as well, but his story will go down in history. His story will be infamous because he fled and left his clothes behind. Talk about naked and afraid. He was the poster child. He wept for many hours that night and certainly over the next few days as he saw what they did to the one that he left behind when he ran away. It had taken several years after that to show that he was changed, to prove that he could be trusted and relied upon to do the work that was required. And then came the great opportunity when the church in Antioch was led to send out the very first missionary team to the pagan world. Barnabas and Saul, who had now become the Apostle Paul by this time, John Mark was asked to join them. Acts chapter 13, verse 5 notes that John Mark was with them as their helper. Now, it's obvious that he was gonna be their gopher, but he was fortunate to be aboard the first mission trip. He would have the opportunity to learn and serve. When they sailed to Cyprus, John Mark observed the power of God at work. In the governor's house, he saw this important leader embrace Christianity and come to know Jesus in a real way. But not long into the mission, John Mark faced his greatest challenge. At the next stop on the trip, something happened on the first leg of the journey that was a challenge to John Mark. And when they made it to that second leg, he quit the team and went home. He was homesick probably, missed his mother, struggling to find his place on the team As he looked ahead to the next leg of the journey, he knew that they would be hiking through rough and dangerous mountainous areas, and so he chose not to go. Mark quit and went home. Can you imagine the emotions of the trip home? Probably relief was there for sure, relief from some of the Apostle Paul's demands on the mission trip, but that quickly faded to a time probably of sorrow over a failed mission. He would have many days to think about it. He would sail and think for many days. And then he would have to sail back into Antioch, where he would be met by those same church leaders that sent him out and trusted him in the first place to do this work, to include him in the work. He would then make his way to Jerusalem, to his Christian friends, and to his mother. And while the Stoics' axiom is, don't explain, don't complain, it would be hard not to do both. So what? would John Mark do next? Well, the Bible's actually silent. The Scriptures are silent about the next two years. Did he go to church or did he drop out? Did he assume leadership or did he just take a back seat? Did anyone understand? Did anyone care? Did anybody reach out to him? Perhaps Peter did. After all, the stories of the Gospels were distributed only orally at the time. One apostle had been killed, others would die off, and the gospel story, the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ would die with them. This needed to be written down while the witnesses were still alive. Many scholars believe that the apostle Peter enlisted Mark, John Mark, to be his scribe and told him about all that Jesus had done and all that he had said. Now, John Mark was there for part of it, but not all of it. This may have been the first time that Mark wrote down these things that would eventually become the gospel of Mark, the first written record of the ministry, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps they read portions of the writing to some of the other apostles to make sure they got the details right to get their take on it. And this may be why 15 years or so later, Paul asked John Mark to come to him. If you see 2 Timothy 4.11, it says this, Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. That's the title of the message today as we start the series, useful for ministry. See, Mark had been a failure, but somewhere along the way, he became useful for ministry. Paul wrote of his desire for Mark to join him in Rome, showing that God can restore to effective ministry even those who have previously failed. And I imagine that on that day when John Mark saw Paul and visited with him for the first time since all that happened, that they burst into tears as the reconciliation and forgiveness of Jesus was complete. All his worries about how hard that day would be faded when the two men put the past behind them in the name of Jesus. At least that's how I imagine it. Very well could have happened that way. However it happened, God had a redeeming chapter for Mark yet to live. And he had a great foundation. Mark had a great heritage of faith. His mother's name was Mary. It was in their home that the church was meeting. The meeting place for Christians was her house. He may have been the nameless man carrying the jar of water, some scholars think, that led the disciples to the upper room for the Last Supper, the Passover meal. It was at Mary's house that the Christians gathered to pray when Peter was in prison. Remember this? Peter gets out of prison. He comes knocks on the door, Right? She provided this meeting place for Christians. Even though Christians were in danger of persecution, she provided the meeting place for the new church. Her home was large enough. She had a servant who guarded the door, Rhoda. Can you imagine Mark's opportunity living there in that house to learn, to know the apostles, perhaps even visit with Paul when he visited with the Christians there? Mark's uncle was Barnabas, you know, the son of encouragement, right? Mary's brother, Barnabas, was a respected and trusted leader in the early church. In fact, his generosity, you might remember the story, led him to sell his personal land and finance a benevolence ministry in the church. It was Barnabas who, as the son of encouragement, befriended Saul when all the apostles were afraid of him. Uh, We we don't want Saul. I mean, you, you know what he's done, right? He's a persecutor of Christians. We're not letting him in, are we? And Barnabas came alongside and encouraged him and And urged the apostles to accept him. It was Barnabas then that was chosen to go with Paul. (laughs) You go with him, right? (laughs) To be the first foreign missionary sent out by the early church. The story is told of a man wanting to become a gold prospector in the days of the gold rush. and So he sold all his possessions, bought a toolkit for prospecting, and began his search. He had heard about this rich gold vein in this certain area, and he went there to try to make his fortunes. True story. After a long time of fruitless search, he buried his toolkit where he was last searching and walked away. He was done. He quit. A few years later, a large company with instruments to detect gold came to the area. They found the large gold vein, and on one side of the vein, they discovered the prospector's tools. He was six inches from his fortune. He lacked a decided heart. And you know, at one time, that was John Mark. John Mark lacked a decided heart, yet somewhere in the 15 or so years between the time he had deserted and abandoned the folks on the mission trip and Paul's request to come to him, Mark had developed a decided heart. It might have been as he wrote down the words of that first gospel, listening to the stories of Jesus. Or maybe it it, it was on that second mission trip where Barnabas took him, and, and they went out again to share the gospel with churches, people in places the gospel had never even gone. The news about Mark's ministry in his later years, if you read on, speaks of his devotion to Christ. So what were the factors? What were the factors in redeeming the life of John Mark? Well, again, ancient tradition has consistently attributed this gospel to Mark, who was believed to have been a uh, a close association with the apostle Peter. And I love this correlation, don't you? I love this for two reasons. One, um, and I certainly wouldn't be surprised if this is how it actually happened. Peter called John Mark's son in the scripture, and so he kind of inferred that he was like a spiritual father to him, that he was a mentor, that he was a discipler of young John Mark. And this is the big one: Peter would have certainly understood failure, and Peter would have certainly understood how to come back from that. So think of his story. Peter was a fisherman. We kind of got to get the backstory on everybody before we dig in. Peter was a fisherman. He was out one day fishing, and Jesus came to him and said, hey, drop your nets, come, follow me, I'm gonna make you a fisher of men. And so Peter became one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and people love Peter, (laughs) because there's something about him that we can just identify with, right? I mean, he was just a normal guy. He had a big mouth. He said some dumb things, right? And he was not real churchy either, which sometimes I find kind of refreshing, Paul is sometimes way up here, and Peter is always down here. Paul was like, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I graduated from the highest school in the land under the greatest teacher in the land. And Peter was like, yeah, but I can tell you the difference between a carp and a crappie. Paul strikes me as the kind of guy that translated documents from the Syriac in his spare time. Paul probably would have been a History Channel kind of guy. I see Peter as kind of a Sports Center kind of guy. Paul strikes me as that kind of guy that's always up here and Peter's just like the rest of us. So Peter followed Jesus around in his ministry and and not only was he one of the 12, Peter was part of the inner circle, the three people who hung out with Jesus during his coolest moments in his ministry. So Peter knows what it's like to be with Jesus. Literally, he experienced Jesus firsthand. On his worst days, he bossed Jesus around and denied even knowing him. On his best days, he wrote two books of the Bible and according to church history, was crucified upside down at his own request because he said he was not worthy of dying in the same way that his Savior died. That's Peter. So I just want us to think about these two guys as we jump into Mark today. Peter denied Christ, yet he was able to do great things by God's grace. He was both rebuked by Jesus as a tool of Satan, get behind me, Satan, and also became the chief spokesperson for the apostolic group on the day of Pentecost, preached the first gospel sermon to which 3,000 people responded and were baptized into Christ that day. Friends, we need to remember Jesus started the New Testament church on the shoulders of a restored failure named Peter. So two things that we learn right away from their stories that kind of set us up to dig into Mark. First, I write this down. Sometimes we drastically overestimate the power of our human energy when it, comes out to living, uh, when it comes to living out commitments. Don't we do that? Don't, don't we sometimes drastically over, overestimate our own human energy when we think about living out commitments, like I got this. Now, you remember Peter even did this, right? I will never deny you. All others will, will fall away. I will never fall away, I'll die with you. We sometimes do that, but I believe that both for Peter and John Mark, their failure served them well in the days ahead. Second thing though, and this is big, Failure and brokenness should never be the last words of a life story. Failure and brokenness should never be the last words of a life story. Maybe you came in here today through the monsoon, right? And and you felt broken. And your life looks like the weather outside these days. Or maybe you walked in here or you're watching online and you just feel like for most of your life you've you've you failed. That you've been a failure. I hope that it registers deeply in your soul and in your heart today as we study Mark chapter one that failure and brokenness should never be the last words of a life story. God's grace can write another ending if there's a willingness to let go of the pen and let God do the writing. So let's dive into the Gospel of Mark and as we start this series, knowing the backstory makes it even better, doesn't it? As we look through these texts from an eyewitness and from a scribe who overcame their failures, and became useful to God. Mark's account is especially vivid when recounting incidents involving Peter. That makes sense, doesn't it? It it presents the weakness of Peter as well as the disciples as a whole, and it it omits praiseworthy and noticeable references to Peter reported in Matthew and Luke. In fact, if you just read through the first chapter, I'm going to get through eight verses with you today, but if you read through the first chapter and you just put Peter in your head, think about him. It's amazing some of the correlations you'll see. In fact, let me read to you as we start. Grab your Bibles, verses one through eight. It says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I won't do this the whole time, but I want to stop here. I'm thinking about Peter in my mind. Mark's writing this. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is like the good confession, right? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's how it starts. Verse two, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Crazy guy, right? He ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Mark, the first written account we have of the life of Jesus. One of the reasons There weren't any written accounts in that day so far, is because it was very difficult for any distorted accounts of who Jesus really was to take hold, right? Too too soon. It was hard because of the presence of eyewitnesses. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth just about 20 years after the death of Jesus. He's writing to the church, and he's talking about the resurrection in chapter 15. He's talking about what the resurrection means, how it happened. And then he lists the people who actually saw the risen Christ. And at one point, he even says, there were 500 people to whom Jesus appeared at once, at the same time. He says, most of them are still alive. If you want, you can ask them. Go and talk to them. They're still here. They're still with us. In other words, what Paul was saying was, within the first two or three decades after the life and death of Jesus, it would be very difficult for somebody to make up things about Jesus because so many people were there who actually saw him, who actually knew him. For example, you couldn't say, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, yeah. He used to fly through the air between preaching engagements. Yeah, he was divine, so he would fly through the air because there were too many people around who would say, no, 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 I lived there, I was there, that didn't happen. But about one generation after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, when the apostles were starting to be martyred and and they were dying off and when the eyewitnesses were starting to die off, then arose the danger that people could just decide who they wanted Jesus to be. So Mark writes, this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that word gospel, is a great word, evangelion in the Greek. It's a technical term for news of victory, not just good news, news of victory. The gospel of which Mark speaks, listen friends, is not a book. Okay, it's not a book like Matthew says, this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's more like a book, it's a history book. But rather, for Mark, the gospel is a story of salvation in Jesus. Mark inaugurates a new literary genre in applying the term gospel, not to a book, but to the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, in Mark's understanding, the gospel is more than a set of truths, it's more than a set of beliefs, it's a person. He says it's the gospel of Jesus Christ from the outset. Mark announces the content of the gospel is the person of Jesus who is the Christ, the son of God. In fact, in some ways, Mark, of all the four gospels, might be the best place to go to get really the the naked, unadulterated, undistilled, straight up, real truth about Jesus because all the other gospels are longer, Mark is the shortest. They're a lot longer because they talk more about Jesus. So for example, you look at how Mark starts versus the other gospels. Matthew starts with a genealogy, a lot of prologue. Who is Jesus? What are his roots? Who is his family? Luke starts with a prologue about Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist, and then Mary and Joseph. It's all very interesting. You go to the gospel of John, it starts with the creation of the world. He's a big thinker, big picture guy. In the beginning was the word, right? Mark starts right in on Jesus, Boom. In fact, not only don't you, you have much teaching about Jesus and commentary about Jesus, you don't even have much teaching by Jesus in the book of Mark. Mark just wants to give you Jesus. He just wants you to see his character, his actions, his life, his, his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's why he does what he does. And the reason this is important is because we're in the midst of a culture that desperately needs to see the real Jesus and know the real Jesus. And because that's what this book is written to give us, a Jesus who can change our lives, we're going to look at the gospel of Mark this year. So I really want to leave you today with two big thoughts and one point of application. Can we do that? Two big thoughts, one point of application. Are you ready? So how do you know that Jesus isn't just a great human king or one of many great teachers, Mark, here in the first eight verses, gets right down to the point of who this king is. We're told two things. Here are the two big thoughts. Write these down. Here's number one. Number one, the king has come. The king has come. First of all, let me show you who Mark says the king is. Verses two and three. He says, it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one crying in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, that may sound normal to you because you've heard this probably, but this is a bombshell. (laughs) This is a bombshell. An absolute bombshell in history, in literature. Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, there's a quotation of prophecy by Isaiah that says, someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem. So you go back to Isaiah 40. You should read the whole thing in its entirety sometime. But he says, someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem and show the nations his glory, and a messenger will call out, Prepare the way before him. That's the prophecy. Mark identifies the messenger with John the Baptist, and so therefore, that means that Mark identifies the Lord who is coming of Isaiah 40 with Jesus. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? I'll tell you what the big deal is about that. If you go back to the Hebrew passage itself, the word translated in our English Bible, Lord, prepare the way of the Lord, is the word Yahweh. It's the personal covenant name that God revealed to Moses for the very first time in the burning bush. It's the personal name of the covenant God that Jews considered so holy they wouldn't speak it. They wouldn't even write it down for fear of of spelling it wrong, writing it wrong. And Mark is saying, Yahweh, that's the one I'm talking about, Yahweh of Israel, creator God of the universe, rightful ruler and judge of all the earth, has come to earth in the form of Jesus Christ The king has come. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. The immortal has become mortal. The unapproachable is someone you can hug. The totally invulnerable has now become radically vulnerable. The impossible has become possible. The king has come. God becoming human. In Jesus Christ, friends, is the universe sundering, history-altering, worldview-shattering, life-transforming event that sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the face of the earth. Here's what the book of Mark is saying to you. The incarnation can actually change the way you live your life. A whole new way of doing everything, a whole new reason for doing everything, a truth that can change your life and break down the barriers. Mark says, I want to show you this truth. It's in what Jesus said, how he acted, what he did. It's Jesus' life. I'm now going to show you, Paul, uh, Mark says. I'm going to show you. So read on. That's, that's quite an introduction to the book of Mark. Well, the rest of the book of Mark, we're going to be looking at all that this year. But let me give you the second big thought to leave with today. And here it is. Number one, the king has come. Number two, the king has come to die. The king has a cross. In the passion narratives, Mark portrays Jesus chiefly according to the model of the suffering servant of Isaiah. Immediately before the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus tells a parable about the only son of a vineyard owner who suffers rejection and death at the hands of insolent tenants. Ironically, his death on the cross is a place where both his mission and his identity as the son of God converge. And as such, the cross is the first place, the first place where humanity recognizes Jesus as the son of God. Mark 15, 39, the Roman centurion said, truly this was the son of God. Now that term king in our culture and in many other cultures, can sound very oppressive, right? Even this language sounds oppressive. Literally, it says, prepare the way for the king. Make straight paths for him. The word for way is the word for road or highway. And that's important. Let me tell you why. Ancient people here in this prophecy immediately knew what it was talking about. When a king came to a country, you had to actually build a highway, build a road to honor the king. See, ordinarily back in those days, since nobody had modern engineering at the time, when you created a road, if there was a rock formation, you just went around it, right? If you had to go through a canyon, you would kind of zigzag your way through the canyon, and that's how you would make your road, right? If you wanted a straight road for a king, you had to dig down through the rock formations. You had to bridge the chasms. You had to even fill the canyons, and that took zillions of slaves. So when a king came, It was slavery. There were a whole lot of people who weren't happy about that. There were a whole lot of people who would think, if Jesus is king, that means oppression. Now I'm going to have to do what he says. I don't like that idea. Sounds like slavery to me. Sounds like oppression to me. No, because Mark deliberately brings this word up. I love this. It's the Greek word hodos, which means the road. Prepare the road for the Lord. And this is the cool part. Every other place in the book of Mark where the word road is brought up, it means the road to the cross. The road to the cross. Every other place where the word road is used in the book of Mark, it's Jesus' road to the cross. Every place he talks about it. And that means that this king does not come to go onto a throne, but he comes to go onto a cross. King's cross. I'd like you to consider that the paradoxical term king's cross is at the heart of the message of the gospel of Mark. It's the heart of what he's trying to say. You realize what a paradox that is, right? King's cross. Kings go to thrones. They they don't go to crosses. As a matter of fact, the cross is the opposite of a throne. A throne is a place of power. The cross is a place of the epitome of powerlessness and helplessness. A person dying on a cross wasn't even allowed to die in private. It was a long, agonizing death, stripped naked for everybody to see. It was the exact opposite of a throne. And Mark is saying here that the kingliness and greatness of Jesus Christ is that rather than go to a throne when he got here and lord it over everybody, our king goes to a cross for us. And what that means then is that Jesus Christ's kingship is not oppressive because he's not just a king, he's a servant. Jesus Christ's kingship is not oppressive because it brings salvation by grace through faith. As a result, it's not enslavement, friends, but liberation, and that's what changes your heart. That's what changes your heart. Again, think of Peter and Mark. Brokenness was not the last word for Peter. Failure was not the last word for Mark. So if you came today, Feeling a sense of failure and uselessness. Trust me, we've all been there. And trust me, we all understand. We all do. But Isaiah forty three eighteen says this. The Lord says, forget about what has happened before. Do not think about the past. Instead, look at the new things I'm going to do. And I hope you feel a sense of that here at Eastview that there are some new things God wants to do. We're trying to get past COVID. We're almost there, some of you. You're still watching online. We'd love to have you come so we can give you a hug, a safe hug, okay? But we need each other. We need community. We need to be a light in this dark world. And man, I hope you sense that something big is about to happen, that God is about to do some new things. No matter where you've been, no matter what road you've walked down, no matter what you've done, there's always hope. And it comes through surrendering your life and your will to this king who doesn't bring oppression and slavery, but brings liberation when you surrender your heart to him. So, those are the two big ideas. Let me give you the point of application, especially for those of us seeking to be useful in the ministry. You've just been doing a whole series called On Purpose. Hope you're living a life on purpose. Let me read you a passage. And we'll end with the final application. We're making the final turn, okay? John chapter 15, verse 1 says this Jesus is speaking here I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. You wanna be useful? He's telling you how here. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. You know, repetition in the Bible is God's way of telling us, pay attention, all right? Listen up. When the same word shows up over and over and over again in a passage, we should pause We should take a closer look. I hope you heard it in the passage, right? Remain, remain, remain. 11 times in my translation, or in the old King James Version, the word would have been abide. Abide in me as I abide in you. Abide in my love. Abide, abide, abide. When Jesus talks to the disciples, friends, about what it means for them to be his disciples, the first and most repeated word we have in the passage is to remain or abide, which leads us to the point of application. If we want to overcome failure, and we want to be useful to God, to be useful to God, we must remain in the vine. We must remain in the vine. No matter what's happening in your life, Jesus says, you must stay connected to me. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branch, and there's only one thing a branch is supposed to do, remain or abide. You want to be used by God? Remain connected to the true vine of Jesus. And here's what you'll find. Production is a byproduct of connection. You stay connected. You're gonna produce fruit. Spiritual maturity or spiritual formation is defined at its core, not being busy with a lot of Christian activities. Sometimes we define it that way, don't we? Oh, I'm so busy doing Christian things. That's not spiritual formation necessarily, right? It's defined at its core, not by being busy with a lot of Christian activities, or knowing a lot about the Bible, filling our head full of knowledge, but doing nothing with it, or piling up spiritual accomplishments, because the Pharisees did all these things, and Jesus said they were the least fruitful of anybody. If you don't stay connected to the vine, you will never bear fruit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say, you can do some things. You can do a little bit. No, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. So here's what I'd suggest we do as we launch into a year in the Gospel of Mark. Let's not spend the next few days and weeks and months trying harder to be more loving, trying harder to be more joyful, trying harder to be more patient, trying to do that character self-improvement thing. That won't work. It will only be more frustrating. It will only make us feel more like failures. Let's do something else instead. You ready? Abide with Christ. Remain in Him. If you don't abide, if you don't stay plugged into God, stay connected to the vine, you'll never be fruitful. I'll never be fruitful. But connected to Him, I can be used by Him. You can be used by Him. Just like Mark, just like Peter, we can be used by Him in amazing ways to do amazing things for his kingdom. And that's my prayer for you, Eastview, as you launch into a year studying the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King who has come, but not only the King who has come, the King who has come to die. The King who has come, not for a throne, but for a cross, written down by Mark. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your news of victory. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for loving the world so much that you sent your only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank you, God, that you've given us victory, not through a throne, at least it didn't start that way, not through lording it over, not through making people do your every bidding as slaves, but through love, sacrificial love that would go to a cross. And Jesus, you were willing to give up your own life so that we could be free, so that we could have a personal relationship with you, so that we could be useful, make a difference with our lives in this world for you. So give us courage, Lord, to know what to do, And give us courage, mostly, Lord, to say yes to you. To not worry about the past. To leave the past behind, as Isaiah says. And look forward to the new thing that you're going to do. Do it, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.